the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScripters. This is Matt Lynch. I co-host the podcast along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and on the rare occasion, Chris Tilling. And on our still new theology stream, Amy Brown Hughes is the host of that part of OnScript. A quick shout out to Ed Hatkey for his production help once again, to Rebecca Terhuen and Tommy Molman for marketing assistance, and to all those who give to OnScript to help make this viable. Thank you so much uh, for, for your help. Um, you've been able to keep us rolling. If you haven't yet given us an iTunes or whatever other platform you use rating, could you please do us a favor and do so? That would be most appreciated. Enjoy this episode hosted by Drew Johnson. The Hebrew Scriptures open with a series of horrific stories about murder, prostitution, and daughter-on-father sexual assault. These stories all appear just in the first half of the book of Genesis, and they're all being perpetrated by Abraham and his relatives. Literarily speaking, this is a bold move. Theologically speaking, that seems problematic at the very least. But what role should horror have in our culture and our theology? And how do our experiences with trauma and horror shape our reading of scripture and shape our contemporary theology? Today I have with me Scott Hauer, who is a uh, lecturer in Christian thought at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He's got a few books out before this one, which include Trinitarian and the uh, sorry Trinitarian Self and Salvation, Raised from Obscurity: A Narratival and Theological Study of Characterization of Women in Luke Acts, and Trinity with Without Hierarchy: uh, Reclaiming Nicene Orthodoxy in Evangelical Theology with Mike Bird, and he's also co-editing with Michael Bird the Cambridge Companion of the Apostolic Fathers due out in 2020. But today, we're going to be talking with Scott about his new book, God of All Comfort, a Trinitarian response to the horrors of this world, put out by Lexan Press in 2019. And I want to be careful to say that every mention of the word horror is horror and not whore. That's right. G'day. Good to speak with you, mate. Bienvenidos a OnScript, Scott. Uh, primero, ¿podemos continuar la entrevista en español? Sí, si querés podemos hablar español. Es un, ah, no, no es problema. Uh, lo siento, no es posible. Es por, uh, recordé, no hablo español, solamente inglés. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, I'm better off in English too, so let's okay. do that. But hey, good Spanish, Drew, mate. That's all right. Fake it till you make it, that's what I say. Yeah, fake it till you make it. It's been my professorial uh, mantra. No worries, uh, no worries. Very welcome, and it is 4 p.m. here in New York City and 6 a.m. for Scott in Melbourne, Australia. So thank you very much for joining us at this unsightly no hour. So I really enjoyed this book, and in a full disclosure, I actually endorsed the book in the back. But um, even if I hadn't endorsed it, I would still enjoy the book uh, immensely. And I think, um, you know, a book like this clearly comes from somewhere. It's it's obvious even as I was reading that uh, this was not just a pet topic that you thought would be interesting to pick up, but that it came from somewhere deep within you and your, your experiences and your theology. So I wonder if you could tell us, how did you get interested in this topic? And I know just a little, uh, I know enough to know that you have a goth background. Yeah, sure. And so Absolutely. maybe, I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it as well. 
Yeah, um, it is true. You and I first uh, met and connected over um, punk and goth music. And um, that genre is one that picks up, you know, these themes of disintegration, wasting away, nothingness. Um, and yeah, that's the kind of music that uh, always resonated with me, um, I guess, because I grew up in South America uh, during a military dictatorship, a war. Uh, lots of people were disappearing and um, I got to see many horrors. I guess that's the starting point for the book, personally. Um, however, I also believe that right now we're kind of in a bit of a crisis of horrors uh, where we're at. I think people are aware of horror in a way that we haven't been in the past. Uh, we see it on um, news shows all the time when there's a shooting or a stabbing or a truck decides to run through crowds of people. Uh, we see it all the time and also our culture is producing lots of horror related products which is our way of digesting the horrors so like we're all watching zombie series game of thrones is essentially a series of horrors and these shows give us the opportunity to sort of digest them at a safe distance but it's the kind of stuff with which we're becoming very very familiar yeah even that little int uh, intro into how you got interested already begs the question can you define horror from us and maybe what's the difference between trauma and horror and why it's so important to have what you call um, a horror attuned reading of scripture? We'll get to the horror attuned reading of scripture later, but what's, what is horror? Yeah. So I guess um, I, something else I should say by way of background was uh, one morning I arrived at work uh, ready to teach. Um, I think it was uh, church history and there'd been a huge bombing um, in England that it involved a lot of Aussies uh, at this pub where there'd been um, a huge attack and over half our students had family or friends in England and I remember them just looking at me as if I had to say something on horrors um, and what, what, what the hell's going on and that's where uh, this model I give for what a horror um, comes from. It's from trying to explain what's going on to students. I mean it, it also comes out of my teaching experience and the first point I'd make is that a horror is something that is a movement from death to life. Um, it's an objective, a reality in which there's a degeneration, a movement from death to life. And that's the key um, point with a horror. And when we have a movement from death to life, something happens in a person's life in that there's a replacement of good things with lesser goods or actually evil things. So that's the main criterion for horror. Um, and then I have four other aspects um, of what may be the case in a horror. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, and I think the, the four other aspects, uh, one thing I liked is you you either flirt with or are an analytic theologian. Um, I, I haven't quite figured you out yet because you, you seem to make so much sense. Um, <laughs> I, I tell you how it works. I went to Trinity to do my PhD on Karl Rahner, who's continental. And then I stumbled over Tom McCall and Keith Yandel, who were analytic. <laughs> and uh, Tom McCall was the second reader of my PhD, so I thought I'd better get my act together and be clearer than a German continental theologian. <laughs> yes, uh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, I actually was originally going to do my PhD on Karl Rahner and uh, sacramental theology. Oh, my uh, goodness. Wow, that's amazing. That's which, amazing. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know why I was just so drawn to him. Okay, we'll have to save that for the Colorado podcast. Yeah, yeah. but you had <laughs> so you have these. Uh, you had that very broad definition of horror, but then you had you you make distinctions what it is and what it isn't, or possible cases where it could be and where it couldn't. So yeah, how do those and, work? Yeah, sure. So in addition to 
um, a horror having to include a movement from death to life, there are four uh, smaller aspects which may be the case and often are the case. And these include the fact that a horror is sourced in an objective, uh, malevolent uh, willing. That's often the case, uh, for example, when someone is violently assaulted. Um, secondly, a horror prevents um, a person from both being and allowing others to fully be an image of God as they have made. So it prevents our flourishing, but it also prevents us being there to allow others to flourish, to service them. Another aspect of horrors is that it often entails a traumatic response. Um, and that's where we find the difference between a horror and trauma, which we'll get to in a second. And then fifthly, um, I argue that it's not fully possible to recover psychologically um, and relationally from a horror. That's what makes a horror a horror, is that even though you might recover to a large extent, you actually can't fully recover from it. So there are four sub-points of what makes a horror a horror. That's why horrors are so significant. And that last sub-point is, I, I remember writing in my margins of the book, uh, oof, like that, that just hurts because the power of it is so palpable. And I think in psychology, they used to call it psychological scarring or psychic scarring. Um, but uh, I, it's difficult, I think, for a lot of Christians who we focus on everything through a redemptive lens. And so we, we just assume, and you do a great job later in the book of pointing out in the Gospels uh, how this actually works out as well. Yeah, sure. And so one of the keys in this book was not to begin with, you know, Pauline theology um, or the story of redemption, but actually to begin in Genesis with what is good, what shalom is, who we are. That way we can really point out how heavy horrors are and how bad they are. And that in turn points out like the good news of the gospel and our call to be, you know, sh shining like stars in the Father's kingdom. But we need to reckon with horrors by understanding exactly how bad they are. It's a big commitment in this book is we need to be realists, you know, um, and if we're not realists, then our worldview fails the pragmatic criterion, which means we may as well believe in gnomes or, I don't know, kangaroo gods or whatever. You're right. And it's one of the things I found, sorry to keep talking about the nature of the book itself, but um, I have sometimes, I won't say always, but I've sometimes found analytic theology or systematic theology to sometimes skirt and flirt with the the problem, they they discuss reality in a way that almost seems a little fairytale-ish to me, or a little too cut and, cut and dry. Um, and I think that's a common critique. Um, although I think it's not as bad now as maybe it used to be in the medieval period. Uh, although the medieval <laughs> period, well, and but the medieval period actually they were very sober in some ways in which we're not. Um, they were, they were. But uh, you just ride this line throughout the book of uh, we never escape because of the topic. We never escape the cold hard realities of life and how these are affecting and shaping us as the people of God and those outside the uh, the kingdom. Um, but also, you're always giving us incisive uh, kind of rubrics and routes to think about the topic and also to act, which I, uh, I sincerely appreciated um, because I think, I think most everything I write, I fail to include, here's how to act. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't want to tell anybody what to do because I know I, I don't have the wisdom to uh, back it up. But uh, going no, back actually, to the issue, yeah, go ahead, go sorry. Ahead. Oh, well, while we're on um, your work on ritual, one of the important aspects of uh, recovery from trauma is how you use the body, actually. So um, when you write about ritual and learning through being together and actions, uh, that's certainly an important part of what people writing on recovery from horrors need to include. So that's just me saying that I think it works actually quite relevant 
um, to the practices that communities and individuals require uh, in order to overcome horrors and to embody uh, something new that's come about and learn through that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I hadn't put those two things together, but um, in this new book on rituals, I, I did a little work on um, just looked into EMD, EMDR therapy and um, Bezel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, the, the trauma stuff. And uh, I, th I found it fascinating how they're using these strange rituals to kind of, um, well, to help people sep separate themselves from their traumas. And um, well, okay, there's lots of interesting stuff in trauma research, uh, which is a developing field within theology and biblical studies. But could you, uh, you, you said it very quickly, but maybe a little bit uh, more carefully tease out the difference between the, the trauma as a response and the horror as an event, I guess. Yeah, so um, so there are uh, objective horrors. So there are horrors uh, that might be, say, the mutilation of our arms or somebody beats us to break our will or we are raped. Then there are subjective horrors, which is a horrors of perception that we believe that we're being hunted down and that's grounded in other experiences often. Now, both of those um, cause a response and that's a trauma response. So when we talk about someone who is a trauma survivor, it means that they are someone who's experienced horrors and they have found the horrors so overwhelming and they continue to experience them that there is a uh, fracture in their memory and their approach to reality and their perception such that they cannot integrate this huge awful event that's happened or happened to happening to them um, and that it provokes a trauma response which is essentially they feel overwhelmed they lose a sense of agency um, ideas such as hope meaning uh, is their life a good thing can good come out of it all those things are wither and almost disappear so being someone who is um, a survivor of trauma or traumatized is someone who's having a huge response to horrors themselves. And that's the link between horrors and trauma. Speaking of horrors and traumas, um, this is a very minor one, but uh, horror films, uh, the genre of horror films. Uh, and I, I remember I can give you two films. And I think we talked about one of these last time we were together. Um, two films that traumatized me as a young person, but but they were not, neither of them were horror films. One was, um, you're the one who gave me the, the title was uh, Fortress, the Australian film from 1985, which is about the kidnapping of children from, and a teacher uh, by these men in these Santa Claus mask and mouse mask and all these other things. And then uh, Red Dawn from 1984, which, which in vivid color illustrated the you know, the terrifying reality of an invasion of our country or whatever. Uh, and I remember both of those, like those, I would lay to awake at night, very worried um, because of both of those movies. And, and what's, I guess, interesting about that for me is neither of them are horror films. They're both like action, thriller, whatever. But I've, I still to this day shudder a little bit when I see pictures or stills from those movies. Um, and I, 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 the Fortress one is interesting to me because uh, until I was talking to you, I had completely forgotten about the movie, shut it out or something. And then I was reading in your book as well, uh, you just, you, you almost casually note that Australians, their view of nature and their view of, of the landscape itself, they view in a completely different way than Americans think about nature and landscape, right? And 
So maybe we could connect these two because I think a fortress is the perfect storm there of, of using both nature and the horrors of what that men perpetrate on each other uh, and combining them. And maybe that's why I got so scarified. I don't know. So um, I guess um, the book, because it was generated in part by the classroom questions and the need to some- say something to Aussie students after seeing the horrors of terrorism, has meant that it's a it's a folk theology. This book is a is a Aussie response to horrors, right? So that's the starting point. So that meant that for me, um, I had a good reason to pause and think. Okay, um, I'm responding to horrors from an Aussie perspective. What does that include? Um, so um, it meant that I slowed down and I just took into account our history. For example, you guys in the states were very fortunate that. Um, as uh, cultures of different kinds have thrived in your continent, you have found forests and trees and streams. And yes, there are deserts and places like uh, you know Utah and Arizona and everything. But overwhelmingly, it's a fertile place. For us, our explorers um, hit the green patches on the coast and then slowly moved inland, assuming it was going to be fertile. And um, they died on the way. Um, and uh, they named mountains like Mount Disappointment, Mount Despair, and then they died. I mean, that's that's our history. So in Australian uh, writing, there's a, a strong thread that I mentioned, which is this sense that the, the land itself doesn't want you here and that it's a threat. Um, and, um, you know, we have all kind of little beasties here that are a problem. My dad um, worked in Tasmania and when he got bitten by a snake, he knew he had to go to hospital immediately because there's no non-poisonous snakes. Yeah, so it's that, that kind of place. And it certainly adds to a sense that life is dangerous and unpredictable. And a sense of security is a facade um, because tomorrow we might die. Um, I was down at the beach the last few days with my kids and we were um, jumping off um, rocks into the, the surf and um, swimming into really deep uh, kind of uh, pools of water, but any second a, a great white could have just come and had us as a snack. And you just know that, and that's just the way it is. So it makes you paddle faster. Um, my my so, kids used to yeah. watch all those uh, nature shows, you know, top 72 deadly predators exactly. in the world. And like, and like one through 60 are in Australia. <laughs> yeah. The rest are in Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. It, if it's not the, the animals, it's the sky. The sun will, you know, just oh, burn you to death. Or absolutely. if you go in the water, the sharks will get you. Yeah. 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 So I think that that sense compounds um, a sense of threat that there is in the air and also that perhaps you might never recover because as much as we have first world technologies over here, for example, when my dad got bitten by um, a snake, you know, um, they were in a remote location. Uh, Yesterday at the beach, if one of us had got slammed against the rocks or chomped by a shark, it's a long way for you to get treatment. So things might not work out. And that's a deep assumption uh, within us, which just makes a lot of fields, like my wife works in um, domestic violence as a social worker, just means that recovery in lots of fields and domains of life is something slower, uh, a bit more difficult and quite challenging over here. So that's why an Aussie approach to horrors and trauma I thought was was warranted. That's interesting. Yeah, because uh, we, we learned this in Scotland because I think Scotland has a similar, like, you know, thing, things go wrong. Things, yeah, things are rough. People suffer. That's just the way it is. 
uh, and it really struck us as Americans, like, oh, we do not have this theory of life at all. <laughs> like, if something's going wrong, let's fix it. Let's fix it now. And why can't we fix yeah, this? Yeah, and things aren't fixable. I think horrors uh, bring that out. And that's one of the criteria of a horror. You don't recover from these things. And so trauma studies has really wanted to say, how do you live in the aftermath of the storm? And one of the big questions is uh, that trauma and horrors remain with you always. Um, so what does it mean uh, that God is with us? He's trying to work with us in a circumstance in which things will never be the way we want it to be. So clearly you could have bitterness, um, disappointment, anger, um, a, a search for revenge built into your very core after horrors. And if you're in a place where you're not going to recover, well, you've got really deep questions. And if we can't answer those questions, I think, yeah, we fail the pragmatic criterion and our worldview is useless. So it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. And I mean, even on that front, you noted, um, you know, the issue is not just people who've been victimized and who uh, are now traumatized, but also that the, the victimizers and, you know, are, are equally traumatized. And as, you know, um, we learned from Rwanda, I guess, uh, is one uh, key example that Americans always point to is that uh, that the that the issue, uh, the, the damage done to those who victimize, uh, they don't, uh, how would you put it? Um, you have to actually have a sense of grace and sympathy for the people who, who perpetrated the violence in order for a society to recover from the violence, uh, which is, you know, like that's... I can't think of a more difficult task in front of anybody. Yeah, so um, being a horror maker is a huge problem. And as the book evolves, it becomes a more prominent theme. I didn't want to um, put it up front together with the problem of horrors because it was just too much. I started that way, but the book was just so dark. You may as well be reading Nietzsche. <laughs> so the As a Nietzsche-file, I take sure. number with that. <laughs> so the problem of um, being a horror maker is one of the problems I tackle in the book. And there's a lot of literature out there to do with a moral injury, that when you commit horrors against another person, you actually commit a moral injury against yourself. So that means you no longer see yourself as safe and trustworthy. So add that onto the fact that life is inherently unpredictable, dangerous, um, and ends in death. If you have a moral injury and you don't trust yourself, well, you end up quite lost. And for us here in Victoria, where I live, we have a huge problem with drug addiction and domestic violence. And people commit all sorts of horrors, sometimes under the influence of drugs and alcohol, but other times just um, uh, because we are horror makers and we um, target and victimise and beat people and reduce them to nothing. And we live um, as horror makers with this terrible guilt. And one of the big questions in Australia is as a secular nation, uh, where does uh, forgiveness fit in? How does healing occur within a person? Um, and what I wanted to do in this book is add the theological dimension to the psychological and the social dimensions of recovering as a survivor of horrors and also as a horror maker. Yeah, and this is not... Um an anthropological or sociological study, it, uh, it brings in all of those aspects, but um, you focus it towards the end on, well, how do we read scripture and then the Trinity? So I wonder, how does all of this shape what you call into a, a horror-attuned reading of scripture? I, um, I, you, you focused on, particularly on Matthew, um, but feel free to speak from any part you no, want. Sure. Um, look, I'll tell you a little story that um, is some of the background to this. Um, so, 
I've you know been working out for quite a long time, and during that time, I've made some really good friendships, and I've had two uh, long-term training partners at different points who um, decided that they were happy to read the Bible with me, and they were both non-Christians. And what struck me about that um, experience with both of them was um, that as we tried to read Matthew in one case and Luke in the other, that because they had grown up here and had been involved in violence and one of them uh, was an addict and so forth, is that when they read the Bible, they had so many inbuilt assumptions about how dangerous the world was, um, how there's this eventual movement towards decay, that when they read, for example, the massacre of the innocents in Matthew, um, they freaked out. And it seemed that the Bible just reinforced everything they knew about the world being a hideous place. And Jesus was just another kind of um, a pretender, a cult leader amongst many, for example, rather than reading him and going, oh, wow, Jesus is fantastic. So I guess through reading the Bible with non-Christians uh, from difficult backgrounds, I, re I realized that when you read the Bible from that background, you read it in an entirely different way. Um, so my aim was to show uh, what a horror-attuned or horror-sensitive reading of the Bible might look like. Um, for people who are trauma survivors. That way, those of us who haven't experienced traumas can see through their eyes uh, what the Gospels might look like and be empathetic with them. So it's an exercise, firstly, in empathy. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people listening, um, you know, will ask themselves, wait, have I experienced a horror? Um, have I, am I a trauma? I mean, this is the typical American way forward is, I might be a victim <laughs> here, let me stop and Well, check. very possibly. But I think for many of us, yeah, and some people will be. They'll, you know, they'll actually go. Oh, okay. This, this, this is actually describing what happened to me. This explains some of the things that I think about myself. And then some of us are going to say, "Well, we've never really had any. You know, maybe I was bullied in school, but nothing really. Hor you know, the movies or something are the worst thing that happened to me. So, I mean, just on a practical theological level, um, do you seek out uh, people who? I mean, a, how do you find these people? Uh, B, if they're if if you experience horror to the point that it's traumatized you, um, most people aren't going to want to talk about that openly. But it's it almost sounds like it's a, it's necessary. I mean, that's where I started in the book. Is I started with a this is interesting, and I, I quickly flipped into oh this is necessary. Um, so I wonder um, we you know we have a field called feminist theology or queer theology where we're reading people who are coming from that uh, that specific direction. So apart from finding a, a workout partner. Um, do you have any suggestions for how people should go about uh, learning the skill of listening to the text? This yeah, way? look, um, I actually think it's a huge thing, Drew, and I think it's part of uh, being responsible and living up to understanding the rights and responsibilities we have with other human beings. So when I deal with another person, um, and this applies to us all, we need to be good listeners of, of what's going on and sometimes if we're from, uh, and luckily from a, a safe background ourselves, we might not hear what's going on and what has happened with them. And one of the issues in the church in Australia anyway, over the last 30 years is that we haven't listened to the stories of sexual abuse uh, victims in particular within the church. We just haven't had a radar for that. We haven't been interested in that. We haven't been attuned to that. We've been scared and we haven't known what to do. Um, but I think that a horror-tuned reading means that um, 
we need to be empathetic and sensitive listeners to others and take th- take it seriously when um, people read, uh, for example, the resurrection and um, ascension narrative of Jesus. And it seems like um, some of his disciples worship him, some doubt him, and then he just takes off. Um, and then the disciples get slaughtered around the Mediterranean. Like, that's just terrible. Um, so we need to take it seriously when people think that Jesus has abandoned his uh, disciples and that that echoes very deeply with a sense of abandonment that they might have within them. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, I guess, like other readings that emerge um, generated by issues in society. A horror-attuned reading, I think, is a necessary reading. And it's really important to pastoral care and um, being uh, people who are there for one another as servants. Uh, Just let me add one more dimension. Um, In Australia, one thing that's happened in churches is that pastoral care has essentially been outsourced to counsellors. So ministers aren't visiting others in their homes. They're not alongside you. They're not listening um, to you. And I think that's a problem because Christians don't have other Christians who are there to listen to what they've gone through, which is very different to talking to a counsellor. So I think that we need to be particularly attuned to listening to others and hearing um, what they experience and how they read the Bible with respect to horror and trauma and being willing to sit there with them and actually invest the time and the relational energy into them. Yeah, I, I think that's desperately important. I mean, I'm, I'm very glad that Christian counseling is, uh, has a common stock place in, in the United States. Um, uh, but yeah, it seems like, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, sorry, this is kind of a tangent, but I think it's an important one. Um, the, my conception of this has been, it's important to hear from others who have common experience, uh, because when you go to a, counsel, a counselor, it's such an isolated and heightened situation but a lot of the comfort I've drawn, especially when I was young and a new Christian, a lot of comfort I uh, drew about my life circumstances was, oh, this happened to you as well. Okay, you're a normal person. Things turn out. You're married. You're you're okay. Um, uh, the just seeing the other side of the, uh, you know, how how this looks ten years later and how it can look in a yeah. good situation was very important. Yeah, sure. Me. And I should clarify that um, our counselors in Australia are mostly non-Christians because we have very few Christians here. So if you go to a counselor and you're describing um, either being a horror maker because you tortured pets as a kid or you've experienced horrors yourself, the last thing you're going to do is whip out a sacred text. That That is kind of extremist thinking over here. Um, so you, you can't digest um, these biblical stories that seem to enforce a horror and trauma reality with a secular counsellor. So if Christians aren't being there for one another, listening empathetically for a horror-attuned reading of the Bible then you're going to have these Christians who are isolated, which is one of the issues of trauma, um, trying to make sense um, of the disturbing stories in the Bible all by themselves, which which will perpetuate, I believe, um, trauma and feelings of alienation and the, the strangeness of God. Yeah. I, yeah. I teach the Old Testament every semester, so of course I'm having to deal with all of these rapes and sexual assaults, and I know in the room that I always have people who have suffered from these things, and it's... And even reading your book again, it made me think I need to revisit uh, how I'm how I'm doing this strategically. But I think methodologically, you're saying horror tune reading, but the first thing I'm hearing is um, we need to pause and let the horror be real to us before. I mean, I think our temptation is to jump to the end and go, but no, it all works out in the end. Uh, you know, get their soul saved and we're fine, or you know, or Jesus is going to come back and fix everything. 
but there's a sense of staying in the time in the text and letting the the horror be real, soak in, um, so that we can also appreciate um, the eschatological consequence of, the, of this. Yeah, as well. we we definitely need to sit with it, um, and it's important to do that because as we sit with how hideous these texts are, it helps us to understand how hideous the damage and the reductions are that happen to us as people. So let's think about our students that are in our classes for, for an instance. Um, they have been impacted by horror, which means that relationally they're less uh, able to engage with us and other students. Uh, morally, uh, they are sort of in a more ambiguous and liminal situation because they've experienced hugely immoral acts. Um, and creatively and functionally, they will have less confidence and less agency as trauma um, survivors. So that means that if we don't engage with uh, the text and are not appreciating these angles, at the same time, we're not gonna be appreciating the damage done to our students. So there's two things going on at once. It's not just to, um, the problem isn't that we're just gonna ignore what's happening in text. It's we're gonna be at the same time ignoring the damage done to our students. Um, Right. Exegeting text and ex exegeting the classroom. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about this really weird experience I had. Um, I teach apologetics um, every two semesters. And the first time I taught it uh, here in Australia after coming back from the States, um, I just did um, one week on, on th the problem of evil. It was essentially the logical problem of evil. So I was discussing Hume and, and all this kind of, um, kind of abstractish stuff on the problem of evil, philosophy, religion, inclined stuff. And it gradually dawned on me that my pastor radar was up and that there was just all this anger in the class. And then I realized essentially the class became pastoral care for the class because there's all this anger at God underneath the surface. I even heard uh, from one student that when they watched The um, Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, they kind of liked the fact that Jesus got um, beaten and tortured very badly because he was like, finally, God gets it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, you know, they're deeply wounded students in our classes. And so now I do three weeks on the problem of evil and we have to break it down very carefully. Like we need to do apologetics within the Christian community about who God is um, given horrors as well as apologetics and that's just focused towards non-Christians because Christians themselves struggle with these issues. So um, I guess I've just been learning a whole lot over the last few years about how important this theme is. Yeah, and that leads directly into the kind of two directions I wanted to discuss, which is um, why the Trinity, because you focus on the Trinity as, as the repairer here. And and then also at some point, I would like to hear what how you think theodicy fits into this or... Do we need to remap what we think about theodicy in light of this? Yeah, so I guess um, after doing a horror reading of Matthew, um, you're kind of flattened and you wonder how it is that people can meet um, the kind of three criteria for moving uh, through recovery from uh, trauma, how they can um, regain a sense of self, a coherent story and reconnect with the community. You're like, well, how's that going to happen? Um, if the Bible itself seems to reinforce many of these ideas. And there's a very important moment in Matthew's gospel when um, Jesus says to uh, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you know, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, uh, great. And then Jesus provides a contrast between uh, a perspective of flesh and blood and 
the gift of the Father, which is a new perspective on Jesus. And I take that as a hermeneutical key for distinguishing between a horror reading, which is a reading of flesh and blood, what we're accustomed to in the plane of history, and the gift of the Father, which is a true perspective on Jesus. And Jesus, once Peter admits who Jesus is, he says, well, blessed are you, Peter, okay, and that this is the gift of the living God, this perspective you have. So I call it a blessed reading. That is, God gives us a blessed reading uh, from himself, which is a reading from the living God, so it's oriented towards life, so faith, hope, and love, and recovery. And it comes from the God who is Father, Son, Spirit. That's who he is fully revealed to be at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And because it's a Trinitarian uh, reading and a new offer of life, it means that the dimensions of who Father, Spirit, Son are, one God, and how they work in our lives can be included in understanding how people can recover a community, a sense of self, and a coherent narrative. So it means that we're not dealing with a distant God, but the God who is within, who is present with us, and who renews us through the Son and the Spirit. So it must be a Trinitarian reading, and because it's Trinitarian, it's very particular and looks very different to the kind of uh, resources for recovery that might be offered by a secular worldview or a deistic one in Islamic one or even a Mormon one. Yeah, so it's hard to imagine on that account, uh, when you put it that way, to think of just some kind of deity or some kind of divine being actually being able to encounter, address, and repair um, in horror. And and the, the notion that not only do we have God in Trinity, but that it's a story with that we're enjoined into, uh, which remaps the story of the trauma, uh, the, tra- the traumatized. Uh, like there's just no way we can now turn this into kind of a, uh, well, you know, just have Jesus no, in your heart. No way. Yes. Yeah. It has to <laughs> so. be and is a profoundly Trinitarian story. So, for example, the importance of the incarnation for affirming the value of human persons is key. But the incarnation is a thoroughly Trinitarian um, view of the world, right? So the incarnation is something that requires the spirit bringing about um, the life of Jesus according to the will of the Father. The incarnation also shows us not just the value of persons, but the power of what God can do in humans. And through the incarnate ministry of Jesus, what we see is God who constantly heals. That's one thing that that is wonderful about the blessed reading of Matthew. When you look at Jesus' intentions for the world, he's always healing people. He's delivering them from demonic possession. He's delivering them from our religious hypocrisy. He wants to set people free to flourish again as God's images for their own good and the good of the other and the glory of God. So when you're attuned to the fact that Jesus actually is God himself at work in history, and this is what the face of God looks like, this is fantastic. And it's radically different from a reading of flesh and blood, the paranoid reading. Hmm, That's good stuff. So um, how would you, since you teach apologetics, I used to teach philosophy of religion at a public university, actually. How would you then reformulate uh, if somebody comes in with the typical theot- theodical questions, how would you reorientate them uh, And uh, given this? Well, question? I think one of the big questions um, uh, with the evidential problem of evil, which is that given the amount of suffering that there is in the world, it's highly unlikely that a good God exists. Uh, with respect to that argument, I think uh, you can say that if these texts at all ref- refer to events in history, then it may be the case that despite great uh, horrors occurring in the world, at the same time, 
there is a God who is doing good things, if these are historical texts. And what I would probably use in a secular context is the Gospel of Luke, because he is the one who has like researched the stories, he's got the sources together, and he's tried to put together a coherent narrative of what actually took place. And if you believe that Jesus was at least an exorcist, at least a teacher, at least a prophet, and he aligns himself with God, well then at least the understanding is that those who align themselves with Yahweh are those who are on the side of healing and life. So that's where I would just begin, without going to the Trinity or anything like that. At least I'd say that, that Christians believe that God is on the same side as life and that you can have two parallel lines running through history, you know, death and life at the same time. And I think a lot of people understand that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, I guess that my final question you've already, you've already kind of answered, but I want to go back to Fortress um, and kind of knowing what we all know now, because it's, uh, again, uh, you, can wa- you can watch it on YouTube for free, by the way. Uh, and it is a little dated. I, like I looked at it now, I looked at it in preparation for this and I thought, okay, it's not quite as scary as I remember it, but um, but I understand why a 10-year-old me was terrified of this. But what is it about a, a horror movie like that, especially like that where it's um, where it's just men doing evil things to children and women? Uh, but w- what is it about that that actually is so um, terrifying? What, is, what, what funds the terror and the, and the trauma there? I think that what funds the terror in lots of horror movies is the sense that that perhaps you can be taken away from everything that makes your life safe. So the starting point is you're removed from uh, family, society, schools, all those attachments that give you safety, and you're in a situation that's profoundly unsafe and at the mercy of evil people. And the thing is, we can all imagine that. You know, it's not inconceivable um, that we get abducted. It can be at the bank, it can be um, on a holiday, it can be at a friend's house, it can be at any time. So what makes it scary at first is the sense that safety is gone and that you're isolated and you may be overwhelmed by someone else. And what the Christian gospel says is that through his spirit, God um, attaches you to himself and that Jesus is always that safe person to whom you're attached. So Jesus gives you that grounding. So for me, that that basic fear that we have is modified by the fact that Jesus is always a safe person for us to be attached to through his spirit, even when we are locked away, incarcerated, abducted, beaten up in a car park. You know, the, the, the bottom for Christians isn't as deep as it is for non-Christians because we're never alone. So part of what makes those movies scary is shaved off a bit by the Trinitarian message of God's presence with us. Um, The other aspect is that when people are abducted um, and isolated from others, their power to act as images of God isn't there. And I think that that's incredibly frustrating. And at some point we all give up. I mean, it's like when you're at a workplace where you're constantly undermined, right? Three years in, you just give up making proposals, right? And in life, as we are worn down uh, by horrors, commonplace ones, as well as gross ones, we just give up. And that breeds a sense of meaningless and purposelessness. And you see it in these horror movies about three quarters of the way through. The people are grotty, they're in a corner, they're tied up, their heads are bowed down, and they even turn on each other. They're, They're done. 
And so that's, that's what horror movies uh, make us realize is that horrors and trauma just wear us down as people. And the good news of the Christian message is that we are called to shine like stars in the Father's kingdom and that God can heal us to the point where we are God's face to one another. And that's one of the main points of the book is that God is revealed indirectly through Christians uh, to one another. So when you're kind to me, when you're patient with me, I actually see God's qualities at work in my life. Um, so the big call on Christians from this book is to be there for one another as God's face when we reveal his qualities, which is totally the opposite from what we see in horror movies, where the face is scary, it's covered up, it has weird makeup, it's distorted with anger. So human faces go from scary in horror movies to kind and loving in the Christian gospel. Um, and that's one of the main points of the book is to be Christ-like to one another to aid each other's recovery. Hmm. That's powerful. You know, it was when I was in the military, um, th these, uh, it was, it struck me as f funny yet not funny that, um, I couldn't figure out why when I was deployed, you know, in Colombia, I was working counter narcotics. I'm out in the middle of the Amazon jungle on a little operating base with 30 other people. And I'm out pulling guard duty and I couldn't figure out why as an 18 year old with a loaded rifle, I was scared of the dark. Um, and, uh, it just didn't make any sense to me. And it was actually much later when I was married and discussing this with my wife, like, why is an adult? Am I still scared of the dark in certain situations? See alone, the isolated, but I think part of it too, is my imagination of what can go wrong was fostered by watching horror movies as uh, a young man. Um, and I, I even, uh, when I was, well, there's another story, but I got shot at by a 15 year old Honduran conscript once, uh, because he thought he saw a ghost because his his imagination had been fostered by a horror movie and so so he took a shot at a ghost unironically i guess i'm like <laughs> you realize how ghosts worked if you believed in those kind of things um so yeah th these aren't neutral or merely entertaining vehicles in our society um they're actually trading on something um very deep within the fall i i guess yeah definitely and a number of philosophers say that and this is in the book that the horror genre and a, a horror-tuned reading of reality is actually a good thing because it, it unmasks your assumptions that you can drive to work and back every day and you'll be fine. When the fact is actually, the more you do that, the more likely you are to have a terrible accident, lose a leg or die. So horror is actually an epistemological good and is quite a helpful thing in grounding our assumptions and keeping us in this life with our feet on the ground. The problem is, if that's true, then what does that mean for how we live purposely and without losing hope? You have to have a Christian belief, otherwise you will succumb to the reality to which horrors actually yeah. point. Yeah, okay. Are you ready for the speed round? Yeah, sure, mate. I listened to this <laughs> podcast and, and the thing I have been preparing for the most hasn't been rereading the book, but it's been the horror round. I mean, not the horror round, the speed, the speed round. round. <laughs> yes. Let's call it the horror round for today. Okay, yes. Well, it will not be horrific. Um, okay, so um, this is going back to your roots, because um, I think you and I are about the same age. Um, what would you consider the most influential band or album that was not on MTV or the radio when it was released? Um, I would say The Cure Pornography. Wow. 
Good one. Yeah, that was part of a, a trilogy that dealt with um, disintegration as its core theme. Excellent. Um, okay, can we talk about Crocodile Dundee for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, All right. national hero. Uh, okay, what's up with it? Is, is he known by Australians? Crocodile Dundee, absolutely. Yeah, really? sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And then there's a, a more a more recent guy who sadly died when a stingray oh, stabbed yeah. him through the guts. But um, yeah, no, Crocodile Dundee is, is real, and there are enough people like him that you sense that you've you've seen him a lot of times. Okay, so he is he. People don't like they're not embarrassed and like oh we're not really like that. They say okay yeah I know that guy that's an uncle of mine. Well, it's like he is the part of us that we try to hide under suit jackets when we go to um, <laughs> SBL and AAR. Excellent. But if you've ever hung out with uh, Mike Bird, for example, or myself, um, you know that there's a funny kind of larrikin sense to us, and, and that's what Crocodile Dundee is. He's the adventurer in us all. Well, he certainly uh, shaped my conception of Australia uh, at a young age. Okay, um, at Society for Biblical Literature annual meeting, are you going to go this year? Oh, unfortunately, I'm not, but I'll oh, be you, here next year. Oh, you're missing the best year. It's in San Diego. Yeah, right. Yes, okay. I, I've I've been to San Diego before, and um, I, I loved it when I was there. I actually follow the San Diego Padres in in the baseball because uh, they're <laughs> Padres, right? Because I'm an Anglican priest. <laughs> and then I got to San Diego, and I, I looked at the stadium, and I was like, okay, this is why they never win anything. <laughs> hey, hey, point of fact, I had forgotten that that team even existed until you mentioned them just now. <laughs> I think the last time I heard them mentioned was like in 1987 or something. Sure. No offense to our San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Going back to Crocodile Dundee for a second. Have you yeah. ever been to Dundee, Scotland, upon which I assume uh, Dundee? Oh, okay. No. No, no. I've never been to Scotland. No idea. Oh, okay. Really? Never been to Scotland. Oh. Mm. I, have to, I have to visit those folks at Logos sometime. Yes. Uh, okay. So Society for Biblical Literature annual meeting. So when you do go, what do you most look forward to and what do you most dread? Well, I think the thing I look uh, forward to the most is the whiff and stock dinner where people <laughs> like you and I get to, get to catch up and yes. speak long into the night. Um, I, um, I, you know, I go every year. This is the first year I'm not going. And the thing I enjoy is the um, panel presentations. So like this year I did some stuff on comparative hagiography across religions. And that's, that is just so stimulating intellectually as an academic, um, dealing with other people from other perspectives. I love that. I also love catching up with people that I studied with. Um, so last time, uh, I was at San Diego, you know, we had just had some beautiful breezy, um, seafood tacos with old friends and it was just wonderful to hear about their families look through their phones look at the photos of what's going on that's great too so th there's a lot to love about these meetings and they really are a highlight for me yeah yeah so now what do you dread besides the uh i assume you have significant uh jet lag yeah well that was what i was going to mention is the fact that you're supposed to arrive after not having slept much at all and uh, be compass. Uh, but in fact, um, I'm often incomprehensible as a Aussie anyway. And then you add on, you know, being awake for 40 hours, you never know which crocodile Dundee is going to emerge. <laughs> yeah. Um, I tell you, the, the thing I do dread is, um, is realizing that perhaps I had misunderstood someone. Uh, so if I'm on a, a panel or say responding to a book, um, or giving feedback to another paper, 
just because of the distance from Australia and we don't bump into people that much and the time difference means that you're not kind of getting people's vibe all the time. So my big fear is that I've misread someone and that I would be sort of uh, rude or something like that. So that's my big fear. And I think that that's why going to SBL and so forth is important for Aussies and New Zealanders and South Africans who are far away from the centre of the action, just so you can spend time with people and get a good sense of who they are before you start engaging in constructive critique. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. I mean, I, I always presume from the outset I am misreading them and this is just the way it goes. <laughs> I haven't found a way to get around it because I'm just not perceptive enough to find another way. So that's okay. Uh, members of the body. Okay, I have two Jeopardy-style questions for you. You're familiar with Jeopardy and how the game show works? No. Oh, okay. So this is easy. I'm going to give you, um, in this case, I'm just going to give you a list of things. And then uh, these are the answer, and you're going to give me the question. Okay. So if I said, okay. you know, tomato, pear, apple, you'd say, what are fruits? Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. So he here's your, your first set of answers that you're going to okay. give me the question for. Michael Bird, Michael Buble, Phyllis Tribble, Tom Cruise. Best looking people in any environment. <laughs> Who are the best looking people in any environment? <laughs> I like how you corrected yourself. Yes. Because I was going to have to say, oh, I'm sorry, in the form of a question. Yes, um, yes. No, these are four people who have never been in my kitchen. Good try, though. Oh, I, I appreciate okay, it. okay. Well, it sounds okay. like you need to have them. Yep. Next one is uh, rotten herring, fermented broad beans, head cheese, and balut. What are the best aspects of German cuisine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. The question we were looking for was four things that taste better than Vegemite. <laughs> Nothing tastes better than Vegemite, man. We, we uh, have that all the time. You want to hear this? This is like I consider my epic joke of the century. Somebody had brought Vegemite and left it in the, the faculty kitchen where the students come in and s sneak stuff out of there when they shouldn't. And so I, I ripped off the label of the Vegemite and replaced it with um, Nutella. And <laughs> because it looks almost identical. Uh, yes. And, oh, jeez. Uh, that's and a good I, one. And I waited for reactions, and I only heard secondhand how people reacted. But Is that okay. where you're interested in horror comes from? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you were a horror maker, mate, well, getting someone to, to eat Vegemite unwittingly. You know, <laughs> you know that, that feeling when you eat it? Or like if you just get some in your mouth, when somebody says, hey, try this, and you get it in your mouth, and then you realize that nothing you drink will get that taste out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. It smears and gets in the creases, yes. and you actually have to I'm go in manually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You need a spoon to get it out. Okay. Exactly. Um, so you, you know this question is coming. Is what do you think the most significant book in biblical studies or theology of this last generation is? I think it would be one of the works uh, by T.F. Torrance on the Trinity. So the Trinitarian faith, for example. Um, on the Catholic side, it would be Karl Reiner's Theological Investigations because he was trying to work in a cross-disciplinary manner and speak into a new situation after Vatican II. Perfect. Yafé, as they say in Israeli Hebrew. Okay. Uh, what's the, uh, that means like uh, beautiful. Okay. All right. What's great. the uh, funniest one-liner joke you know? The funniest one-liner joke I know? Um, you know, I am really be good at dad jokes. What's that? It better be Pardon? hilarious. 
Mate, I'm, I don't have one. I'm so sorry. I'm a huge f- a fan of puns and jokes on the run, so I don't have any memorised jokes, but if you spend enough time around me, you'll know that I'm great at dad jokes. Okay, I gave you an opportunity. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear my favourite knock-knock joke? Yeah. yeah, go on. Okay, you start. Knock-knock. Knock-knock. Who's there? Uh, who's there who? You got me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay, knock-knock. Who's there? Interrupting care. Interrupting no, no, no. care. <laughs> no, no, okay, okay, wait, we're going to do this again. We're going to do this again. Okay, okay. Do you know I know the joke. joke. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bad man. You're a bad man. Okay, knock-knock. Who's there? Howdy. Howdy who? How do you like to open the door for me? Oh, that is bad. That's yeah. horrible. <laughs> you know what the secret to, uh, to comedy is? Timing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you just killed me with those pauses back then. You're good at it. <laughs> there, well, there, I'm, I'm abusing the distance between us and Australia. So, <laughs> Okay, last question, uh, but it's a significant one. I, I'm especially interested to hear your answer to this is, what idea in theology or maybe biblical studies um, would you like to see go the way of the dodo bird? Do you think it's been unhelpful or a corrupting influence possibly? Yeah, okay. Look, um, this may be a little unpopular, but I think that in systematic theologies, if you start with any other basis other than the doctrine of God, I think you're setting yourself up to misunderstand fundamental aspects of reality. Um, classically, you would begin with the doctrine of God and things, all things as they relate to him, which means that you bring God's will, qualities, um, attributes, and purposes to bear on everything that is subsequent to it. There's been a move recently to um, begin systematic theology, say, with the kingdom or the gospel, the good news. And I think that that is to skip uh, ahead. And it means that you leave off the power of your doctrine of God uh, to deal uh, with issues that come up. So, for example, with horrors, if you'd begun with the kingdom and the gospel, I think you would have really lost out. Um, So for me, the idea that perhaps needs to be critiqued or uh, yeah, left behind is the idea that you can do systematic theology without beginning with your doctrine of God. Hmm. Yeah, uh, and in, yeah, sorry. Can I push a little bit more on that? Sorry, that was a good answer. Um, so how do you see the interaction between biblical the- theology and the doctrine of God specifically? Yeah, okay. So um, I guess I like to differentiate between biblical theology as the uh, kind of task that looks at connections within texts, corpuses, and the Bible itself, and systematic theology, which is about connecting the dots and in more of an analytical manner, thinking about what pertains to um, God, humanity, and so forth. So when we think about biblical theology, I think that we will see um, ways of talking about God, uh, for example, his name, um, his actions, covenants, and so forth. But at the end of the day, we need to be able to draw them together into a more coherent picture. Um, My concern is, for example, if you're dealing with a biblical theology of God from, say, um, Amos and uh, prophets of his time, is that there's an emphasis to do with God's character in those texts um, that leaves out other aspects uh, of who God may be. And so I think what biblical theology may miss is the fuller picture. And good systematics should give you 
the whole picture that uh, biblical theology generates. Well, it's really good stuff, Scott. Uh, I, again, I thank you for um, putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard and uh, cranking out this book. Uh, I think it's very profitable, and obviously, I'm not a uh, I'm not a systematic theologian. Um, oh come but, on! I, I think those distinctions are so artificial, to be honest. Well, I I, I think for the most part that's true, but um, I I I think that there's a lot more work like this that needs to be done in uh, systematic theology. So I hope it stands as a paradigm for others um, who are coming into tracks. Mm, sure, no worries. Happy to talk with others. Yeah, so, mate, thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, great to know you over the years, anyway, and um, I really value. The podcast. I, I, I listen to it in the mornings on my way to work, and it really is a shot up the arm to think that there's lots of other people there taking biblical studies seriously. So thanks, mate, for putting in. It's great. Uh, we, we appreciate the, uh, the plug. Um, if you have any further questions for Scott, you can write them on the back of a $100 bill and mail them to me at the <laughs> King's College, and I'll forward that question on to him via email. So thanks, Scott. We'll see you next time. Do that. All right. Thanks, mate. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.